A voice of one calling in the wilderness, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. He tends his flock like a shepherd. He gathers the lambs in his arms and carries them close to his heart. He gently leads those that have young. and look to the heavens. Who created all these? He who brings out the starry host one by one and calls forth each of them by name. You who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good news to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. Lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, here is your God. Well, this week uh, we started as a church, as a congregation, our 21 days of prayer and fasting started on Thursday. And I just want to thank those of you who are participating with us on that at whatever level you're participating. and want you to know that I'm praying for you every day. Our pastors, our elders are praying for you. Uh, this morning as we were praying, Pastor Bill Gilfillan prayed, and I thought it was such a beautiful prayer, that during these 21 days of prayer and fasting, that the soil of our souls would be more fertile to be able to be richly empowered by God. And just, uh, we're praying this is a dynamic time for you in your walk. And as we together as a community pray and fast for our community and our community outside of these walls, I uh, want to encourage you, if you have not been a part of that or you're not sure what I'm talking about, uh, welcome you to watch last weekend's sermon, kind of gives an overview of that. And you can join on for the remainder of our time. And also, there's a daily devotional written by some of our staff and volunteers here. You can uh, find that on the YouVersion app and, uh, and be a part of what we're all doing every single day. Um, it's been exciting to hear some already uh, stories of people that are engaged in the prayer and fasting. I heard from one father whose, whose high school son said, Dad, I, I want to learn more about fasting and, and do this, and that they came to church last weekend uh, together, and, uh, and this high school uh, young man is engaging in a part of this 21 days of prayer and fasting. Another story is that one of our high schoolers, a different one, asked his friend, hey, what are you doing for the 21 days of prayer and fasting? His friend had not planned on being a part of that, and this is the beauty of positive peer pressure. So now his friend has actually put together a plan for what he's going to do. And on Tuesday night at the Edge Middle School Ministry, one of our middle school girls asked her leader, so what are you doing for the 21 days of prayer and fasting? So the accountability that's coming even from our, our students, uh, so excited about that. And, um, and all throughout, uh, praying that this is an amazing, amazing season for all of us. Um, I've mentioned before that I, I grew up in a church, my dad was a pastor, it was more of a traditional church with, when it comes to worship style, choirs, choir robes, organ, piano, hymns, all that. And, and quite frankly, that is a, such a key part of my upbringing, my spiritual um, heritage. There's parts of that that I miss at times, uh, for sure. But one of the things that was um, a staple at our church growing up is that in December, there was always this big Christmas musical put on by our choir in, in the, the worship department there, and they had the singing Christmas tree thing. And while the music in the program was different every year, the ending was the same every year. And you knew that it was coming to a close 
when Evelyn Stallnacker, she was our organist, Evelyn Stallnacker was on the organ. Now, before you make fun of organs, if you've ever seen an organist working their feet and the multiple keyboards, pretty amazing. I don't know. But anyway, she gets this and pulls out all the stops, which, by the way, is organ speak, if you know what I'm talking about. She pulls out all the stops, and she hits these opening familiar chords that, you know, this, dun, 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 and then all of a sudden the choir, in one voice, just sings, hallelujah, this hallelujah chorus. And it was amazing, these words out of Revelation. And as we talk, as, as they would sing, you know, and he shall reign forever and ever. And the women re- would respond, and he shall reign forever. And all this vibrato going on, and king of kings forever and ever, then lord of lords, hallelujah, hallelujah. And it continues to modulate, and it continues to crescendo to this great eruption of hallelujah. What a way to end a Christmas program. Now, as some of you are aware, that Hallelujah Course is part of Handel's Messiah. And for most of us, not all, but for most of us, and I'm putting us in the us category, me in the us category, most of us who are not as cultured as some of you, that's probably all we know from Handel's Messiah. We don't know any of the rest of it, but we do know the Hallelujah Course because it's kind of ubiquitous in our world even. But Handel's Messiah is a, is a phenomenal work. Uh, written in 1741, the original version of it was over three hours long, and all of the music was composed by Handel in 24 days. He's a genius, musical genius. What you may not know is that at the very beginning of that, of Handel's Messiah, there's an instrumental overture, and then a tenor comes up, and he begins to sing these words, and I'm not going to sing them for you, but he sings... Comfort ye, comfort ye my people, comfort ye my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her. These opening words, the opening song of Handel's Messiah are the, are the verses from Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5. So today, what I want us to do is I want to look, we're not going to sing Handel's Messiah, we're not going to do that, we don't have the time for that. You think my sermons are long, it's three hours. We're just going to look at Isaiah chapter 40, verses 1 through 5, these verses out of Isaiah. Um, Some of you know that there will be times when I'm preaching and I'll be kind of talking about something that said, oh, I wish I had more time to go into this. Or I might say, man, this part deserves a sermon all for itself, or I might say, This warrants a series all by itself. So the plan was, honestly, um, as I was putting uh, the early part of this year together, I thought, well, I'll do the week on fasting. I'm going to do a standalone following that and then some other things. And this was supposed to be a standalone one-off sermon based on Isaiah 40 because there's some really great stuff in Isaiah 40. And as I was preparing it and as I was studying for it, I kept hearing myself saying, Ooh, this deserves to be a sermon in and of itself. Ooh, this ought to be a series. And then I stopped myself and says, who plans these series? Talk to that person. That's me. So for the next four or five weeks, we are just going to immerse ourselves in Isaiah 40. And so I would encourage you, even in in your other devotional reading, that throughout this, even the 21 days of prayer and fasting, to spend some time in Isaiah chapter 40. This is an incredible an incredible chapter. Now, for most of us, just like the, the uh, Hallelujah Course is all we know of Handel's Messiah, for most of us, there's one particular passage of Isaiah 40 that we might be familiar with, and it's a beautiful passage. 
It's at the very end where it says, and those who wait on the Lord, those who hope in the Lord will renew their strength. They will mount up on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not faint. Phenomenal passage of scripture. And we will get there in three or four weeks. But if that's all we know from Isaiah chapter 40, it's fantastic. But there's so much more that we have missed. Now we just had Brian and Shauna up here on the platform. And if you know them, Brian and Shauna are Disney freaks. They just love all things. They bleed Disney. So it'd be like this. If all you ever experienced when you went to Disneyland was Space Mountain, that's a great ride. But if that's the only thing you know of Disneyland, there's so much more that you have missed. Space Mountain's good, but there's a whole lot more. That closing chapter, uh, part of Isaiah 40 is good, but there's so much more. And I want us to just immerse ourselves in the beauty. Isaiah chapter 40 is such a beautiful chapter, so rich, so full. One of the scholars in a commentary that I was reading, he said, according to him, his opinion, is that Isaiah chapter 40 is the high watermark, not of the book of Isaiah. It's the high watermark of the entire Old Testament. That's quite a statement to say that there's nothing higher than Isaiah 40 in all of the Old Testament. Another commentator said that Isaiah chapter 40, this chapter is most closely akin to the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we will see that today. We'll see this beautiful picture of God's grace and the gospel of Jesus Christ found right in the heart of the Old Testament. Now, who it was written to, I kind of talked about this a little bit last week. It was written to some people who were living in an age of anxiety, a very difficult season, a lot of hardship, a lot of pain. Uh, there were these reigning world powers that would rise and fall. First it was the Assyrians, then it was the Babylonians, then it was the Persians. And smaller countries, smaller groups of people, smaller tribes like Israel or Judah, they would kind of like just be fodder in the midst of all these rising powers. And this was the case. And because of the constant war of these reigning powers, that there were cities, significant cities in Israel and Judah that had become like desolate because of the war. And as a result of that, as a nation, there was a, a lot of instability, a great deal of fear, and even division and fighting within themselves as a nation. Not to mention the economic disaster, the, the financial chaos, and the uncertainty future going forward on that. So the people of Israel, the morale was in the tank. It could not have been any lower. And there was, on top of all that, and this is probably the worst and maybe the cause of, there was this spiritual degradation where they had walked away from the covenant. They had walked away from God. They had walked away from obedience to him. And all of this disaster and this age of anxiety and all this uh, pain and difficulty could have been avoided. God made it very clear that if they would stay true to the covenant, if they would be obedient, if they would follow him, if they would live according to his laws, that he would fight their battles for them, he would bless them, there would not be a problem. But it was when they would stray away, when they would follow the other foreign gods, when they would be disobedient, when they would have a hardened heart, their obstinance, all those things, that God would say, I'm going to do some corrective measures for the purpose of bringing you back into a right relationship with me. And so now there's been this season, and there's collateral damage as well. Because there are people in Israel who have stayed true to Yahweh. They've continued to follow the laws of the Torah. They continue to do the things, be the people of the covenant. But even the righteous, 
suffer because of the guilty. And with all of that going on, and this is going on for years, it's easy to come to this conclusion that God must have just forsaken us. He must have forgotten about us. He must not care. And best case, he's punishing us. Worst case, he doesn't even know we exist anymore. And with that mentality, this thought about what God must be up to and this warped view of how he might operate, God decides to send them a prophet, send a prophet to speak on his behalf. And that's where we get Isaiah, the prophet Isaiah. Now, little cool side note on Isaiah. This one's just for free. If you don't want to hear this, check out for a minute. Isaiah, the book, is amazing because in some ways it's almost like this microcosm of the Bible. Let me point this out. The Bible has 66 books. Isaiah has 66 chapters. The Bible is broken into the Old Testament, the first 39 books, and the New Testament, the last 27. Isaiah is broken into the first 39 books and the last 27. In the Old Testament, there seems to be this, this heaviness and the, the burden and the law and the judgment. In the New Testament, there's hope and the redemption and the future. In Isaiah, chapters 1 through 39 talk about their sin and their rebellion and the warning against it. In chapters 40 through 66, these last 27, talk about their hope and their future. It's like this little cool picture of what the Bible is all about in God's story. So in Isaiah chapter 40, the things change up to that point. The voice of the, of the prophet was telling them, you know, you've, you, you've sinned and you've been rebellious. Now in chapter 40, something changes. And when he does this, I think what Isaiah says when he speaks to the people in, in Isaiah chapter 40 is that he wants to speak into their condition, into their circumstances, and even into their mindset with everything that's going on in their world, in their circumstances, in their thinking about God. I think, in essence, what he wants to say is, don't just look at what is, but who is. Don't just look around you. Don't ignore that. But I want you to also see who is in control, who is sovereign, who's on the throne, who is God. In fact, throughout Scripture, you see this where, where it's not just looking at the circumstances and the situations and get so focused on that that you, you miss the forest for the trees but to pull back and to see God. The psalmist writes about this in Psalm 121. Psalm 121 says this, I lift my eyes to the hills. Where does my help come from? My help comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. Thursday, as we started our 21 days of prayer and fasting, I left the office a little bit early, uh, a little after four. The sun was uh, you know, going down, and, but the, the sky was still uh, clear. And I went to a place where I, I often go park, and it has this unobstructed view of kind of the, the hills, the foothills, and then Mount Baker behind it. And as you know, there had been this fresh blanket of snow on the foothills, and Mount Baker that day was mostly shrouded in clouds, but you could see part of it. And just thinking about this, I was going there to just be quiet, to, to pray, to, to look at some scripture, and just to, to kind of focus in and be with God. And looking at the mountains and looking at those hills, knowing that this was a part of a sermon this weekend, thinking about that, when he sees this, he looks to the hills, he, he looks there and he says, where does my help come from? It's not these hills. It's the maker. It's the one who put these together. The one who existed before the mountains. The one who existed and called into, into order the space. And we'll look at this more in, in Isaiah 40 later, a couple weeks down the road, three weeks down the road, two. And he says, this is where my help comes from. That I look not just around me, but I look above me. 
I see who this God is, and I'm drawn back to that. So in Isaiah chapter 40, I think that's what he's trying to do. So as we get into this, uh, before we start uh, any further, I want to look at the key verse for the series, the verse that we get the title from the series, the key verse that I think is, uh, is um, important for all the rest of it that we're going to look at. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 9, and he starts off this way. He says, you who bring good tidings to Zion, which there probably wasn't a whole lot of that because there wasn't a whole lot of good news to bring to Zion. But you who bring good news to Zion, go up on a high mountain. Don't just look to the hills. I want you to go up. I want you to get a different perspective. I want you to be a little bit higher. And you who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice with a shout. This is not a whisper. This is not a secret. I want you to lift up your voice, lift it up, and do not be afraid. And you think about this. The whole country at this point is living in fear. Assyria, Babylon, Persia, all that. They live in fear as a nation. They're kind of like, if you know the Old Testament stories, they're kind of like Gideon down there hiding in a wine press, threshing the, the, the grain. Like they want to kind of keep their head low, stay under the radar. They don't want to make it. He says, no, 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 don't be afraid. Get up on a high mountain. I want you to shout this out. I want you to use your, your, your warehouse voice. This is not a secret. I want you to tell people this truth. And when he says, go up on a mountain, I'm guessing he's meaning this figuratively. Figuratively, like, get up to where everyone can hear this, but also get up on top above the fray. Get up above the fog of all of your circumstances. Get it above all of your worldly conditions and get a different perspective. From there, you'll see things from a different light. And then I want you to shout this for everybody to hear. Say to the towns of Judah, and here's the line that's so key, here is your God. Here is your God. Some of your translations will say, behold your God. In the midst of all this, it's as if he's saying, I need to remind you about who is, not just what is. I want to refocus your eyes, not on just the circumstances and the conditions around you, but who is over all of these things, the sovereign one who is still on his throne and still in control. And for some of you, I want to reveal to you the truth about God. Behold your God. Now, I love when I read that in that, the translation, it says, behold your God. I was thinking about when a company or an organization is, um, is bringing a new product to market. You know, there's always this big unveiling, the press conference, everybody's there, and they've got cameras and reporters and a bunch of hype, and they've got something up on the platform, and it's got some kind of a drape over it, and they're talking about this is going to be the next wave, and this is the future, and this is going to revolutionize your world and all that, and then behold your future, and they pull the, the, the curtain off, and there it is. In 2001, there was one of these that happened. 2001, there was something new, and the company that had created this had, was using a phrase like this, this will change the world. That's a big statement. This will change the world, and it will change transportation. And in 2001, whoosh, behold, the Segway. <laughs> now, if you've ever ridden a Segway, they are cool. They are expensive. They did not change the world, unless you're a mall cop. No one used them. 
They didn't live up to the hype. They overpromised, underdelivered. My, my wife and I were watching a, an episode of American Greed about a man who had this new truck company, semi-trucks, called Nikola. And this was going to be a zero-emission semi-truck. Not what's going to be. They were already in production. They were going to run on hydrogen cells that were already being produced far cheaper than anyone could even imagine. Here's this big unveiling of Nikola, this truck. And the whole thing was a sham. Investors lost millions and millions of dollars. It didn't even exist. Behold the new transportation, the new energy. Well, when Isaiah comes along and he says, you say this, behold your God, it's not a bunch of hype. It's not a concept. It's not going to overpromise and underdeliver. This is your God. He is your help. He is your hope. He is your future. And I need everybody, he would say, to know about this God. That's why go on the mountaintop, use your loud voice, because this must be seen by all and heard by all. Everyone has to see this. Everyone has to hear this. And this is, I think, the same for us today. We need to behold our God. We need to see him in the truth of who he is. We need to hear about his sovereignty and his majesty and his splendor. Because if we don't, the temptation is to just focus on all the stuff in our world and all in our lives and all the circumstances and all the hardships and think God must have forsaken us. He must have forgotten us. He must not care about us. Or to get a warped view about who God is and his character. A.W. Tozer, I think it was in his book, Knowledge of the Holy, he wrote these words. What comes into our mind when we think about God is the most important thing about us. The man who comes to a right belief about God is relieved of 10,000 temporal problems. If we have this right view about God, if we can behold our God and who he truly is, it changes our entire life. So, Isaiah 40. What I want to do today is I want to read the first nine verses just straight through, and then we're going to come back and go through about the first five, just like the opening of Handel's Messiah. But let me read Isaiah 40, verses 1 through 9 for us together before we go into it. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed, that her sin has been paid for that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice of one calling. In the desert, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. Rough ground shall become level. And the rugged places a plain. And the glory of the Lord will be revealed. And all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry out. And I said, what shall I cry? All men are like grass, and all their glory is like the flowers of the field. The grass withers and the flowers fall because of the breath of the Lord blows on them. And surely the people are grass, and the grass withers and the flowers fall. But the word of our God stands forever. You who bring good tidings to Zion, go up on a high mountain. You who bring good tidings to Jerusalem, lift up your voice. With a shout, lift it up, do not be afraid. Say to the towns of Judah, 
Here is your God. Behold your God. And today as we look at these first five verses, the first of four or five weeks in this chapter, we will see the greatness and the goodness of God and his grace, the gospel of Jesus Christ buried in the heart of the Old Testament. Ready? For the rest of you, hope you join us. All right. Isaiah chapter 40, verse 1. Let's jump into it. It says this. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. And whenever the Bible repeats a word, you know, like when Jesus would say, verily, verily, or truly, truly, or surely, surely, it, it, it's, it's a way of emphasizing the importance. So for the, the prophet to say, comfort, comfort, it's like using all caps, bold, italics, underline, exclamation point. That's because they didn't have all that and emojis and stuff back in there. And so that's how the Hebrews would emphasize it to repeat it. It says, comfort, comfort, which is strange for a prophet to say. Because prophets were sent not to comfort people. He was sent to disturb them, to wake them up. A, a message of comfort from a prophet was, was out of character. Prophets would say, woe to you, not comfort to you. Say, wake up, like warning here. You ought to be worried unless something changes. And yet this prophet says, comfort, comfort. Comfort, comfort, my people, says your God. Now this is great right from the beginning because they're already thinking that God has forsaken them. God has given up on them. God has forgotten them. You'll see this at the end of chapter 40. But, but he says, no, no, no. You are still my people. I mean, you may have forsaken me, but I haven't forsaken you. You may have forgotten me, but I haven't forgotten you. You are my people, and I'm still your God. I associate myself with you, no matter how rebellious you've been, no matter how obstinate you've been. You're still my people. That hasn't changed, and I'm still your God. That will not change. This language, my people, your God, this is covenant language. When you see it throughout the Old Testament, it goes clear back 700 years before Isaiah, when Moses is bringing the Israelites out of Egypt, out of bondage, out of slavery, and eventually into the promised land. And God says to them in Exodus chapter 6, verse 7, I will take you as my own people, my own people, and I will be your God. Then you will know that I am the Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. Notice who's doing the choosing here. God says, I will take you as my people. You didn't choose me. I'm choosing you. And I will be your God. You are my people, and I am your God. This, this is what he says in the covenant all over again. And, and it's something that was not said to other nations. Now, God loved all the nations, but it was this one that would only get this blessing, this gift, that you would be my people, and I'll be your God. That was the covenant that they were in. And the Israelites have this horrible track record in the covenant. They are forever straying off. They are forever wandering away. They are forever chasing foreign idols, going, being disobedient. And God is forever trying to pull them back around. That's what the prophets were about. That's what the judges were about. If you've ever read through the judges, there's this spin cycle that Israel is on. They rebel. God says, oh, I'm going to need to kind of give you a little bit of a, a little wake-up call, punish them through some other you know, people. Then they would cry out, and he would send a judge, deliver them. They would repent. And then they start all over again. Rinse and repeat. I mean, it just happens over and over again. It's Groundhog's Day. It's deja vu all over again. This is just how they lived. They did this all the time. And God was always faithful. 
It was never them coming saying, God, would you return to us? It was always God saying, return to me. What you see throughout is that they were a fickle people, but a faithful God. And you know what? Let's be honest. It's easy to slam the Israelites, but I, for one, could say that's my story as well. How many times I've done my own deal, and God brings me back. And then I stray, and God brings me back. And then this becomes more important, and God brings me back. I don't know about you, but this is my story as well. God says, you're my people, and I'm your God. Behold, your God. Verse 2, he says, speak tenderly to Jerusalem, which is awfully different because the prophets would always speak harshly. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and proclaim to her that her hard service has been completed. Now, some of your translations may say her hardship or even her, um, her um, warfare has been completed. Last week, I mentioned this. I've mentioned it before. Jeremiah had told them, unless you get back in track, back online here, you were going to be put into exile. It would be 70 years. And that's exactly what happened with the Babylonians. But here, Isaiah is prophesying, there will come a time when that 70 years are up. I know this never happened to you, but there were times in my life, my early childhood, where I was sent to my room. Not because I was so good. Just the opposite. It was kind of a little time out. And what was the worst is when I would say, how long do I have to stay in here before I can come out? And they say, we will let you know. That was the worst. Because it felt like 30 or 40 years or something. And those sweet words when my mom would say, Bobby, you can come out of your room now. Yes! The timeout is over. And Isaiah is saying, you tell Jerusalem and, and tell them tenderly that they've done their time. The timeout is over. And not only that, he goes on in verse 2, that her sins have been paid for, that she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. Now, I don't know about you, but I read that and I'm like, wait a second, that doesn't seem right. I mean, if she already served her time, paid for her sins, why would she receive from the Lord's hand double? Now, not that I'm in any place to say anything about this, but that doesn't seem fair. That seems like unjust on God's part. Like she did her time, she paid the punishment, and you're going to double it up? That, I mean, that doesn't seem right. That's why people say, I don't like this Old Testament God. He's so full of vengeance and anger and hatred and all of this stuff. And beside that, the Fifth Amendment of the U.S. Constitution, there's a clause in there called double jeopardy. This is not about Ken Jennings and Johnny Gilbert coming into your living room every night. Double jeopardy says you cannot be punished twice for the same crime. But it sounds like that's what he's saying here. They receive double for their sins. That's like a double jeopardy. Now, I know that you don't, you don't go according to the U.S. Constitution, but man, just this doesn't seem civil. The Eighth Amendment talks about there shall be no cruel and unusual punishment. God, this seems like cruel and unusual punishment. That they would have to pay for their sins and then receive double for that? What if it meant the exact opposite? It says, tell her that her sins have been paid for. It doesn't say she paid for them. They've been paid for. I don't know if you think about this. Being in time out does not necessarily pay for sins. It might be an appropriate punishment, but when I threw a baseball through my parents' window because I was doing something I shouldn't have done, I got some time out. 
I was done with my time out, but it didn't pay for the window. They had to pay for the window. Tell her tenderly, her sin has been paid for. She didn't pay for it. And that she has received from the Lord's hand double for her sins. What if it's not a double punishment, but a double portion of his goodness and his grace? That he has exchanged the ugliness of her sin and unfaithfulness for the beauty of his grace and faithfulness and double the portion. Now, I'm going to jump ahead to next week's passage real quick, but in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 10, you see this. Verse 10 says, See, the sovereign Lord comes with power, and his arms rule for him. See his reward. His reward is with him, and his, his recompense accompanies him. He's the one that comes with the recompense. He's the one that comes with the reward. So she's received double for her sins. She's been sinful, unfaithful, rebellious. God comes, pays for that sin, and gives a reward double from the hand of God. This is beauty because this is the gospel. And this is what we see in scripture in Romans chapter five, where it says, wherever sin increased, grace did much more increase, not just enough to barely cover it, double from God's hand. There was even more in 2 Corinthians 5, 21, where it says that God made him who knew no sin to become sin so that we might become the righteousness of God. We don't deserve that. What kind of fair exchange is that? Our sin for his righteousness, that's receiving double from the hand of the Lord. Or in 1 John 1, 9, which says, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins, forgive us, and cleanse us from all unrighteousness, double, faithful and just, forgiving and cleansing. It's double there. Titus uh, chapter, uh, chapter 3, verse 4 says, but when the kindness and love of God, our Savior, appeared, he saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of his mercy. Behold your God. Anyone with an amen? amen? Okay. This is not just Israel's story. This is our story. That our sin has been paid for and we have received from God's hand double. What an amazing picture. Now some of you might push back and say, Okay, yeah, Bob, but you're quoting and reading scriptures from the New Testament. You can't really put that on Isaiah. That's Old Testament. Jesus hasn't come yet. It's the character of God. You know, God's angry and he's vengeful in the Old Testament, all that. Okay, well, well, let me push back on you a little bit then. Let's go to another prophet who came speaking the truth about God, and he reveals the character of God. Micah chapter 7. Who is a God like you? who pardons sins and forgives the transgressions of the remnant of his inheritance. That sounds like double. Pardons sins, forgives and transgressions. You do not stay angry forever, but you delight to show mercy. You will again have compassion on us. You will tread our sins underfoot and hurl all of our iniquities into the depths of the sea using some anthropomorphic terms on God as if God has feet, but he says, this is what our God does. He takes our sin and he stomps on me, tramples on me. You could imagine if the almighty God had feet and he stomped and trampled on our, our, our sins, they would be obliterated. That would be a good thing. That is a good thing. But we've received double from his hand. He says, not only that, just to make sure, I'll take those things and I'll put them in the depth of the sea. Let me just inform you, the Mariana Trench off the coast of Guam is the deepest part of the ocean, 36 
1,000 feet deep. If you put Mount uh, Everest at the Mariana Trench, the top of Mount Everest would still be a mile underwater. The deepest part, he says, just to make sure that your sins are dealt with, not only will I trample them, I will take them down to the deepest part of the ocean, and no one will go fishing for them there. No one will bring those back up to bring up against you. It's this picture of the double portion of God's goodness for us. I know this one will date me, but I grew up hearing commercials about double mint gum, usually with twins involved. Double pleasures waiting for you, double fun, double mint gum. I think what Isaiah is saying here is, you didn't receive double punishment from God. You received double grace, double goodness, double the greatness that you could ever deserve. I mean, it'd be one thing if he just forgave us and he triumphs over our sin and our, our desperation. I mean, that, that's, that's wonderful. He does that. But he could say, you know what? I, I've taken care of your sin. I've conquered your sin. I've paid for your sin. I've forgiven your sin. Now, I'm done with you. No more. Go away. You're on your own. Get. Get out of here. I'm, I'm done with you. I do, don't bother me anymore. He could have said that, and that would still be grace. But we get a double portion. He says, no, no. I triumphed over your sin and desperation because I treasure you as my son and my daughter. The reason I did that is so that you could be back in the right relationship. I can welcome you back into my family. You can be seated at my table. We can walk together through this life, this beautiful picture of the double grace of God. Behold your God. Now, we got to keep going. In verse 3, verse 3, verse 3 is quoted by John the Baptist in the book of John later, uh, 700 years later. And John the Baptist quotes verse 3 of Isaiah 40, saying that he is the fulfillment of this prophecy. And he was. This is one of those both ends. It was fulfilled in John the Baptist, but it was also happening in Isaiah's time. Verse 3 says this. A voice of one calling. In the desert prepare, prepare the way for the Lord. Make straight in the wilderness a highway for our God. What a great, what a great passage. Take note of this. The way that is being prepared, the highway, who is that for? It's for our God. This, this is what separates Christianity from every other world religion. Every other world religion, it's our efforts, our work to try to get right with God, to try to appease God, to try to get close to God, to try to be accepted by God. He says, prepare a way and a highway for our God. In Buddhism, it's the eightfold pathway that you would have to keep this way. In Islam, it's the five pillars that will, will get you to that point. In the, the samsari cycle of, of reincarnation, it's to somehow get good enough that you break the death life cycle and somehow reach nirvana or, or Brahma or whatever it might be. But it's all based on our efforts, our work. But in Christianity, God says, prepare a way because I'm coming to you. You don't have to work your way to me. And God says, I'm coming for you. That's not a threat, that's a promise. That's not a punishment, that's a reward. It's a relationship. I'm comforted. Isn't that what Jesus was saying when he tells the parable in Luke chapter 15 of the prodigal son? It's the father who runs to the son. The father runs. Jesus said, I came to seek and save that which is lost. I'm going to mess with some of you, but if you understand that, that there's this highway for God to come to get his people, God is on the highway to hell to save and to rescue and to redeem those who cannot do it on their own, which is every single one of us. 
Behold your God. There's a pathway. It's not so that we can work our way and climb our way to God. It's so He can come to us and redeem us. And then it goes on about this pathway. Every valley shall be raised up. Every mountain and hill made low. The rough ground shall become level. The rugged places a plain. They would understand this in their context, in their culture. If a king was going to visit a nation or a city, they would know in advance, and they would go to great works to get the roads all ready, everything prepared, everything looking good. I mean, it still happens. Dignitaries come to your, your town, and they get everything all spruced up, makes it look good. I mean, we do this on a micro level. We're going to have guests over. We kind of clean things up and put stuff away, and especially if it's the pastor. Hide some of those things anyway. But we get everything ready. I would say, okay, so that's what we're supposed to do to get all this stuff ready for God. No, 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 exact opposite again. It doesn't say you shall make sure that the valley is raised up and that every mountain is made low. It's that God comes. In the valley, God's the one who spans the chasm. In the mountains, God's the one that brings down the barrier. In the rough ways, God's the one that smooths that out. Now, there's a, a song that we sing around here sometimes, and some of you struggle with this, and I don't want to get into a theological debate today on this one at all, but it's called uh, The Reckless Love of God. In, a, in the chorus of the bridge, it says, there's no shadow you won't light up, no mountain you won't climb out, climb up, coming after me. There's no wall you won't kick down, no lie you won't tear down, coming after me. Behold your God. It's the gospel. Make a way, not so that we can work our way, but so that he can come. And Jesus said, I am the way. All right, verse five. Verse five says this, and the glory of the Lord will be revealed and all mankind together will see it. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. This was his plan all along. His covenant with Abraham was he would make him a great nation so that all nations on earth would be blessed. He would make him a great people so that all peoples, that all of them will see God's glory. And it's this glory of God who comes to rescue us, to redeem us. It's his grace, and his grace is his glory. Now, on Christmas Eve, now we were looking at Luke chapter 2, in that powerful passage where the angels say, glory to God in the highest. And I made this statement that I thought I'd bring back for this, that the glory of God in the highest is the grace of God for the lowest. His glory is his grace, and this is for all mankind. 750 years after Isaiah wrote these things, the writer of Hebrews kind of summarizes them in the same way. Hebrews chapter 12 says, let us fix our eyes on Jesus. Behold our God. Refocus on not just what is, but who is. Fix our eyes on Jesus. The author and perfecter, double from his hand, the author and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy set before him endured the cross, scorning its shame, and sat down at the right hand of the throne of God. What is the joy that was set before Jesus that would cause him to go to the cross? It's you and me. It's us. 
the thought that we could be brought back into a right relationship, that he would pursue us, that he would give all so that we could have all. Behold your God. Let me just finish with this. There's parts out of Isaiah 40 we're going to have to skip over, but verse 8 says this, the grass withers and the flowers fall, but the word of our God stands forever. That means it's still standing in 2024. That still applies to us today. The word of our God stands forever and ever. Hallelujah. 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 That's the hallelujah course. That's the word of God. And it's the truth. Behold your God. So as we're in this 21 days of prayer and fasting, we're in this next four or five weeks in Isaiah chapter 40. Behold your God and see who he is and live in that reality. Don't look at just what is, but who is. And behold him and worship him. Live in his great grace every single day.